The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. I would be Matt or Matlana. I didn't give myself the nickname. I earned the nickname. Let's not waste any time. Let's get to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. Tom, if I was, like, scouting 15- or 16-year-old Tom Glavin in both sports, because we know how proficient you were in hockey and in baseball, if I would ask you then, what's more realistic, Tom Glavin, the NHL star, or Tom Glavin, the Major League Baseball star, what would you have said then? I would have said probably uh, a hockey player. Um, I think at that stage of the game, I was a little bit more polished uh, as a hockey player than I was as a baseball player. I think um, I was pretty raw as a pitcher. I was more of a thrower, um, had a good arm, and, and just threw the ball as hard as I could, and that's how I pitched. So uh, my hockey game was much more polished. Did you have a love for one more than the other? No. You know, people would ask me that all the time, and I think depending on what what sport I was playing, I would probably tell you that was my favorite sport just because it was that sport at the time. I mean, um, I loved hockey just because when you step on the ice, you're in the action. Uh, and I think that's why I liked pitching because it was it's the same way. You're, you're in the middle of every play, every pitch. So uh, the, uh, the excitement level is the same. Um, you know, playing, playing the outfield as a kid was a little bit boring, uh, but being on the mound was a ton of fun. What kind of basketball player or football player or other sports, what, what kind of athlete were you? Um, you know, I never really played football. Um, I, I, I would goof around with my buddies and stuff, but I never played organized football. I think I played two years of organized basketball, but, um, you know, it just, it gets to the point, the older you get that the more involved you get with those two sports that I was playing primarily hockey and baseball. So it took up more and more of my time. So, uh, it was just one of those things where something else had to give. And, um, you know, I dabbled with soccer a little bit too, but, uh, I had a soccer coach at that day and age that would have fit in really well in today's world. He wanted me at 13 years old to pick a sport, so I told him, well, I'm not playing soccer then, so that was the end of that. <laughs> so if I trust the Internet, and I don't know whether I want to or not, it tells <laughs> yeah. me. No, everything's true on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to find out, aren't we? It, <laughs> yeah. it tells me that Tom Glavin was a four-year member of the honor roll and on the National Honor Society. Were you that good of a student? I was, yeah. I had to be, man. My parents, uh, that was that was rule number one. You do good in school or you don't play. So uh, that was my thing. I mean, I, I guess I knew early on, uh, well, I guess a little bit with, with the fear of God, so to speak, from my parents that if I didn't have good grades, I wasn't going to play sports. But I also knew that if I wanted to go to college and go to a good college, then I was going to have to have good grades. So, you know, that, that all motivated me. Um, but I think the primary motivating factor was I knew my parents were serious. If I didn't have good grades, I wouldn't play. So then what was the decision if, if like, if there was a decision? Was it college and or the NHL, college and or baseball, or was it going to be baseball or hockey no matter what? Um, it was – It was when it came down to it, it was college or baseball. Um, you know, when I was – when I was going through the college recruiting process, um, it was really trying to find a school 
that I could play both sports. Um, I was recruited, and it's different back then, obviously, than it is now. But, you know, back then I wasn't as recruited uh, for baseball as I was for hockey because uh, colleges got to see me play hockey through my senior year. Uh, They only got to see me play baseball through my junior year. Uh, You know, it's not like it is today where kids are committing as, as freshmen in high school or, you know, sophomores in high school. It wasn't that way back then. So I had more interest probably from from hockey only schools uh, than I did from baseball only schools but you know it boiled down to I wanted to go somewhere and it may have been naive of me to think I could do it but I wanted to go somewhere where I could play both sports Um, so I ultimately I was going to go to what is now uh, UMass Lowell University of Massachusetts at Lowell really good hockey program they're in hockey East Division one at the time they were really good Division two baseball program I think they're D1 now um, but I just wasn't ready to give either sport up. But once I got drafted, um, then it became, you know, I knew I wasn't going to sign with hockey. The NHL is different. They, they hold your rights for five years, so you basically go to college for minor league hockey, and then they kind of circle back with you after your junior year, whereas with baseball, the Braves put a push on me right away to sign me. So um, it then became apparent it's going to be, all right, do I want to go to college or I want to sign and play baseball, and uh, ultimately – felt like being a left-handed pitcher I had an advantage in baseball that I needed to try and use so I chose that route well tell me about both phone calls because it's kind of surreal right I don't care if you're you're 17 or 18 and it's just a baseball only call that somebody wants to draft you or just the NHL team calling but you had two calls one from the Kings and one from the Braves I mean which did one grab you more than the other when the phone rang um you know maybe um you know the, the NHL call was first um, so that was pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, that phone call was essentially, hey, uh, we drafted you in the fourth round. We know you're going to uh, U-Lol, so uh, we'll keep an eye on you. We'll talk in, in a couple years that, you know, going into your junior year, and we'll see where things are at. Uh, and that was essentially it. Uh, when the Braves called me, um, you know, I didn't – honestly, I didn't, get a, I didn't get a phone call from the Braves. My mom did. So my mom got the call and drove up to the high school because I was at practice. Uh, and called me over and said, "Hey, I uh, just got a call from the Braves. You got drafted in the second round." So uh, that was that was that phone call. And then, of course, they called subsequent to that, and you know, we started having conversations about trying to sign. And, and you know, obviously, being a second round pick um, in baseball, they were much more aggressive in wanting me to sign and trying to get me to sign. So it took a couple of weeks. I think I was still playing my high school baseball season, so I couldn't sign anyway until that was over. Um, so once that was over, uh, the process was, was pretty quick, and I was on my way to Bradenton, Florida. Well, I've, I've asked some of your former teammates about that same like process then. Once you get the call and you're drafted, Dale Murphy said him and his dad negotiated. They didn't know any better. Chipper said essentially him and his dad did the same. Um, what about for you? Did you like What was the negotiation process like, and do you remember what the signing bonus ended up being? Yeah, it was the same. My dad handled most of it. Uh, I mean, my dad handled all of it. Obviously, we had a lot of conversations. And I think for us, it was, you know, I had a scholarship uh, to go to college, and that was worth some money. Uh, So you put, I mean, to me, I think that was the that was the starting point, whatever four years of college adds up to, then, then that was the starting point in negotiations. And, and then I think my dad did a really good job. he, He pushed the fact that I probably would have been a first round pick had had teams not been afraid of me wanting to play hockey i mean there was this notion that i wasn't going to sign uh to play baseball that i was going to go to college and play hockey and and 
you know, in, in today's world, again, you, you know all that information. You know a guy's signability. Uh, we didn't have so many of those conversations back in that day. So my signability, I think, was a little bit more in question. Uh, so that's why I ended up becoming a, a, a second-round pick. And my dad did a good job of, of negotiating and, and kind of sticking to the to his his feeling that I would have been a first-round pick had, I, had people not been afraid of me signing to play hockey. So I should get first-round money. And, and as it turned out, I got probably, I think back then, low first-round money, which was – an $80,000 signing bonus, but uh, it was, back in those days, it was pretty good money. So we took the plunge, yes, at the Chernoff house, the big renovations are going on, so it comes down to making the right choices when you want to do some of these renovation projects. And for us, when it came down to flooring and carpet, we wanted to work with a great local company that we know could get the job done. That's why we turned to Peachwood Floor Coverings. I got a chance to meet Ryan Cornell and the great folks from Peachwood. When I say meet them, we got in touch with Ryan. 48 hours later, they came out to our home to start setting up measurements and looking at potential options for flooring and carpeting choices. It was beautiful. I love the process. It was just that easy. And right now, the process can be that easy for you. If you go to peachwoodfloorcoverings.com, you can schedule a consultation. They'll come out to your home. And all this month, if you mention Matt, that's the promo code Matt, they're going to save you 10% on that flooring or carpet installation that you've always wanted. You want it easy, you want the process done quickly, and you want it to look beautiful. We're getting all that done with Peachwood Floor Coverings. Again, go online to peachwoodfloorcoverings.com, or you can call them at 678-935-6901. Peachwood Floor Coverings, big company quality, small company services. Home field advantage exists in baseball. Insurance, too. Your local trusted choice independent insurance agents are active members of your community. They'll always have your back. Find a local auto, home, or business insurance agent at TrustedChoice.com. Folks, you just heard from Smoltzy, and you heard it from me as well. Clayton Rhodes and the Rhodes Group are my trusted choice for insurance agents. They've been my agent for a long time, and they serve all of Metro Atlanta. To get up to 10 auto insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes, visit Rhodes-Group.com slash churnoff today. That's Rhodes-Group.com slash churnoff. It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. I hope you'll go see my friend Sean Daly. That's, get it, the Daily Draft. This is the ultimate sports bar experience. So as the football playoffs near, and then baseball's around the corner, knock on wood, and all the fun springtime things that will happen in Atlanta, you're going to want to enjoy it at the Daily Draft. It's downtown Woodstock on Main Street. What you're going to find, a craft beer bar, self-serve taps, uh, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salad, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. TheDailyDraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like Trivia Night, Kids Eat Free Night, and more. TheDailyDraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love The Daily Draft. Tom, from the outside, you've always struck me as really mature, even when I remember watching you you know, being interviewed. And then on the, on the mound at 21, 22, 23, but were you mature enough to handle being a pro for the first time? Where was your first stop, and, and how did you handle being a guy getting paid for it? Yeah, I mean, I think I was fairly mature. I mean, look, when I first signed, it was a little bit of a culture shock. You know, I went to rookie ball in Bradenton, Florida, and I'd never been away from home. And here I am in Bradenton, Florida, and 
you know, in rookie bowl at, at that level, you had a few high school kids that were drafted, but there were a lot of uh, the Dominicans and, and those guys that were down there. So, you know, that was really my first introduction to anybody outside of this country. So, you know, I got down there and, and, you know, you're almost a minority down there with, with all the Latin American kids that were there playing. So it was, it was a little bit of a culture shock. And then, you know, I was, I was a little nervous about how I was going to feel being a pitcher only. I mean, I was used to playing other positions when I didn't pitch. So I wasn't real sure how this, you know, hey, you pitch one day and you don't do anything for the next three or four or five, however, however they were doing it. So it was it was a little bit of a culture shock. It was a little it was a big learning experience, kind of settling into that pro ball atmosphere of, you know, this is your job. You do it every day uh, and, and you have a schedule every day at the ballpark. And, you know, the pay wasn't significant enough for it to be a big deal back in, you know, in a ball. I think I was making seven hundred dollars a month so it wasn't like i was uh you know making a ton of money other than my signing bonus but you know it's kind of you do you start from the beginning you you go from being you know kind of that uh big wig on campus so to speak and being a high draft pick and now you're you know you're thrown in this environment where it's other guys that are all trying to do the same thing and everybody's scratching and clawing so um you know i think it it didn't i didn't take a long time kind of getting used to uh, the everyday going to the ballpark and doing that and then settling into my uh, my schedule, so to speak, as a pitcher. But I can assure you it was a lot more fun once I got the following year when I got the A ball and played a full season and you're around your teammates and you're trying to win a, you know, a division and a championship and all those things. Then I think it became a whole lot more fun. Tom, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, and maybe it was in high school during the scouting process or in, in A ball, when did you first get um... – to see the radar gun, and did you try to pump it in? Like, how hard were you throwing when you could throw at your hardest? I mean, I think my senior year in high school, I saw it. Whenever I got on the mound, I mean, there were, you know, there were 30 scouts behind home plate all with their radar guns. So, I mean, I, I knew I knew they were out there. I knew they were watching them. Um, you know, so I guess that was my first introduction. I think when I signed, I want to say, you know, I was throwing 90, 91 maybe 92 once in a while, but for the most part, pitching, you know, 90 to 92. Uh, I mean, I had a good arm, but I didn't have anything else. I mean, I didn't, you know, my idea back then of a changeup was to throw the next pitch harder than I threw the last one. So, um, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just had a good arm. And, and it's funny because people will, you know, you know, in today's world, again, it's like, you know, when you're, you're talking to kids or, or parents are talking to you about lessons and this and that, and the other thing. And, you know, they asked me, when was your first lesson? My first pitching lesson was the day I showed up as a professional baseball player for the first day. I'd never had anybody tell me how to pitch or how to wind up or do any of that. I just, I got on the mound and just kind of did what was natural and uh, tried to throw the ball where I wanted to. And I think it was my dad who told me, you know, if you're trying to throw the ball over the plate to a righty and you keep missing away, then move over on the mound. That's what I heard Warren Spahn say one time. So that was the extent of my pitching lessons as a kid. And, <laughs> Uh, so it worked, you know, it worked pretty good, but, um, you know, it, it's just, uh, it's one of those things where you go into it thinking you're pretty good because you got drafted and then you kind of get broken down to, man, I got a lot to work on. And, um, you know, it, thankfully it all worked out pretty well. Do you think you or something like you, Tom Glavin throwing ninety ninety one, who's got good makeup, could he be a first or second round pick today? Um, maybe a lefty, not a righty, um, you know, which is unfortunate. I mean, I think we've gone, we've gone so far the other way with velocity, uh, that I think there are a lot of kids who know how to pitch 
who just aren't getting an opportunity to do it anymore. And, that, and that's sad. And, and um, you know, I, and I get it. I mean, I understand it's, you know, you take a kid who throws 95, then, you know, you're enamored by that and you figure you can teach him how to pitch. Just like, you know, a, a, a kid that uh, exhibits unbelievable power as a youngster, uh, but strikes out a lot. Well, you figure you, you can teach him how to hit a little bit. He's already got the power. You can teach him how to hit a little bit more for average. So it, it's kind of the same thing. But, um, you know, in today's world, no, I, I probably, I definitely would not have been a second round pick. Uh, I think I still would have gotten drafted because I was left handed, but, um, you know, probably would have been further down. And, and uh, I would have, I would, the road to, to the big leagues would have been much more difficult in terms of having to prove myself over and over again because I think the, the the guys that don't have the velocity in today's game have to prove themselves more and more. So if I said to you August 17th, 1987, do you remember what that day would represent? I do, yeah. That was uh, my debut in the big league. So, and it was not a, uh, was not a great day um, in terms of the outcome, but it was a great day in terms of uh, what it meant for me um, you know, fulfilling a dream and getting to the big leagues and, and, and all that. Then it was from that point on, it was just a matter of trying to figure out how to stay there. Well, before that day, give me the 16th or the 15th then. Who called you to break the news to you and how quickly were you on the phone with mom and dad for the call to them? I was in, so it was weird because I was in Toledo. Uh, we had just played that night and I pissed and I lost. Uh, and I had been pitching really well. Um, so, you know, there was a kind of a thought in the back of my mind that at some point I'm, I might get called up, maybe September. Um, so when I pitched that night, I think I lost one to nothing. Um, and I went back to the hotel. And, and, you know, when you lose a game, that's the last thing you think is you're going to get a call to go to the big leagues, right? Because, I mean, you don't, you don't know. You don't understand the process. You, you don't necessarily know that it's, it's more about uh, the process of what you're doing and less about the outcome. But I think for me at that time, it was all about the outcome. So if I lost, then surely I wasn't going to get a phone call that you called up to the big leagues that day. Uh, but that's what happened. I was back at the hotel, and I remember Roy Matico was my AAA manager, and he called me and said, hey, you know, the Braves made a trade, and they're going to call you up to the big leagues. So uh, you got to get on a plane in the morning and go to Houston. And, and you know, I, I know it was – no sooner did the phone hit the did I hang up the phone that I was on the phone with mom and dad. So, um, you know that was a pretty exciting phone call to be able to call them and tell them that. And then, uh, you know, like I said, five days later I'm on the mound in the Astrodome, uh, a nervous wreck, wondering how I got there. And, um, you know, but obviously thrilled with the fact that I was there. Tom, I was looking at your numbers, and we've actually referenced this before. And this is it's not that long ago. It's 1987, but it, but the way we treat it. You went 6-21 and 21 your first two years, a year and a half, I should say, with an yep. ERA hovering around five. And because there was no social media or the amount of attention, Braves weren't very good, you were given time to learn your way up here. Like, I don't think there's any way today we give a guy 43 starts as you got in those year, that year and a half because we would make a decision quickly. Uh, no question about it. I mean, uh, it's like I tell people all the time. I must have been really good for the Braves to let me go out and lose 17 games my first year in the big leagues. But clearly, they saw something in me, um, and thank God they did. And, and I think, um, you know, in a lot of ways, they wouldn't – not only would they probably not have the patience to let somebody go out there and have a year like that, they probably would be afraid to let somebody have a year like that mentally because they would be afraid it would uh, be, the you know, kind of an undoing for a young kid to go through something like that. But – I think that was a tribute to my makeup. I think they knew I could handle it mentally. Um, it was just a matter of could I handle it physically and go out there and get better every day. And, um, you know, I remember that first year we were terrible. 
Uh, so the likelihood of me winning a lot of games or anybody for that matter obviously isn't very high. But my second half that year was pretty good. I think I, my, I lowered my ERA by a good bit. Um, I was much more competitive the second half of that year. So, you know, there were certainly signs of progression. And, and you know, at that time, you know, I had to give a lot of credit to Russ Nixon that, that first year I was in the big leagues. Because, look, I mean, I'm not – I wasn't dumb. I mean, I knew with the results that, that not winning ball games that you're constantly looking over your shoulder, or like, all right, am I going to get sent down? And, you know, he called me in his office one day when we were in Chicago and he sat me down and he said, look, stop looking over your shoulder. I don't – we don't have anybody in AAA that's better than you to come up here and pitch. So you're getting the ball every five days. And as long as you show progress – you're going to get the ball every five days. So figure something out. And that was huge for me because, again, you get so result-oriented. The results are hard to come by when you're on a team that's losing 100-plus games. So, you know, once my focus became more on starting, just trying to get better from start to start, um, I pitched better that second half of the year. And then that next year I had a really good year. Um, so, you know, things kind of things kind of went from there. You mentioned you did have a good year in 1989 in the midst of another really bad Braves team. Did you start to see some light at the end of the tunnel, not just for yourself, but the Smoltz trade in 87, uh, Lilliquist was coming up, Pete Smith came over, like there were some other young arms, and then 90, Steve Avery got a shot. Could you see what was kind of being built around you? I did a little bit. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I, knew, I was aware, obviously, of the guys who I played in the minor leagues with. I was aware of Pete, uh, obviously, because he and I played high school ball against each other, so... Um, you know, I, I knew all these guys were there, but I, I would say, in all honesty, it was probably it was probably the second half of the 1990 season where it really started to click that, man, we got a pretty good nucleus here because even even in that year we weren't a very good team, and I kind of I took a step backwards that year um, and, and had a I think a 10 and 12 record that year, but as a whole, when Bobby and Leo took over. Um, our pitching staff the second half of that, that year was really, really good. And, and I think when you saw that and you saw the Ronnie Gantz and the Dave Justices of the world and Blauser and Lemke and all these guys coming up, uh, we, you know, we knew we had a nucleus of a pretty good team that we could build around. Now, nobody in their right mind is going to tell you we knew what was going to happen in 1991. But when you have that nucleus and then you go out and get the guys that we got in 91 and, and made ourselves a much better defensive team, I mean, things just – took off i mean you know you look at this current braves team last year i guess right everybody thought they were probably a year or two away from winning well all of a sudden that development speeds up by a year or two and they win their division last year uh and they're on the way i i I think we were we were very much like that i think our 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 development was was scouted so to speak as you know we were in 1991 probably a year or two away from being a good team. We thought we were going to be competitive in 91, but we were probably a year or two away. It just so happened everything fell into place a year or two faster than everybody anticipated. So we took the plunge, yes, at the Chernoff house. The big renovations are going on. So it comes down to making the right choices when you want to do some of these renovation projects. And for us, when it came down to flooring and carpet, we wanted to work with a great local company that we know – get the job done that's why we turned to peachwood floor coverings i got a chance to meet ryan cornell and the great folks from peachwood when i say meet them we got in touch with ryan 48 hours later they came out to our home to start setting up measurements and looking at potential options for flooring and carpeting choices it was beautiful i love the process it was just that easy and right now the process can be that easy for you if you go to peachwoodfloorcoverings.com you can schedule a consultation they'll come out to your home and all this month if you mention matt 
That's the promo code Matt. They're going to save you 10% on that flooring or carpet installation that you've always wanted. You want it easy, you want the process done quickly, and you want it to look beautiful. We're getting all that done with Peachwood Floor Coverings. Again, go online to peachwoodfloorcoverings.com or you can call them at 678-935-6901. Peachwood Floor Coverings. Big company quality, small company services. Hey, are you tired of shopping your car and home insurance every single year? Well, somebody's got to do it. But that somebody doesn't have to be you. At the Rose Group, we can get you up to 10 insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes. Visit us online today at roads-group.com. It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. I hope you'll go see my friend Sean Daly. That's, get it, the Daily Draft. This is the ultimate sports bar experience. So as the football playoffs near, and then baseball's around the corner, knock on wood, and all the fun springtime things that will happen in Atlanta, you're going to want to enjoy it at the Daily Draft. It's downtown Woodstock on Main Street. What you're going to find, a craft beer bar, self-serve taps, uh, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salad, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. TheDailyDraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like Trivia Night, Kids Eat Free Night, and more. TheDailyDraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love The Daily Draft. Tom, I talked to Leo Mazzoni, and he, he shared a story, and he said that he kept using the term the genius of Bobby Cox. And, we, you know, from the fan standpoint, you only see during the games and then postgame. But there's so many things he talked about Bobby being key with his patience and development, but also knowing when to step on the gas. He told me a story that in the second half of 90, when he takes over for Russ Nixon, he sat you, Smoltz, Avery, I want to say maybe Pete Smith and Charlie Liebrand down and said, you guys are my guys in 1991. Unless something crazy happens, as long as you're healthy, you're starting as a starting rotation, no matter what you do in spring. And he said that was kind of a, a huge sort of like tip of the cap to you guys and meant a lot in 91. Do you remember that? I don't, but I mean, I, I, I'm. If Leo remembers it, I'm pretty certain that it happened, and, and I'm, and I would venture to say that that's very much up Bobby's alley. I mean, that's how Bobby was. You know, he, he was very big on letting you know where you stood, and, and 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 letting you know that okay, here's the deal. And so long as you're doing your part, then that's not going to change. And you know, that's the way Bobby was. I mean, Bobby Bobby was really good at identifying talent, um, and and knowing where where talent was best served and then doing everything he could to relax you and put you in an environment where this is, this is it. Now it's on you. Um, You know, there wasn't a lot of that uncertainty or, you know, Hey, if you had a bad start, you're not going to start your next time. Uh, You know, and that means a lot, particularly when you're young guys um, and you're going through the ups and downs of a baseball season as a young player, that you know that if I have a bad game today, I'm going to get a chance five days from now to, to atone for that and go out there and get things back on track, not, hey, I'm going to find myself in the bullpen because I had a bad game. And, and that's, you know, you ask anybody who's played for Bobby, that's huge. Knowing, knowing that you, you had your role and it was your role and he was, you know, like he said, unless something crazy happened, that's not going to change. It means so much to a player to know that, that that's, that's the deal and that you have a little bit of room to 
maybe make a mistake or have a bad game or a couple of bad games, knowing that you're going to get the opportunity to get things on track if you do struggle because he has faith in you to do that. Tom, I know every athlete, especially at that level, has to have confidence. But if I had sat down at that point, 25-year-old Tom Glavin in the spring of 91 and said, listen, you're going to win 20, 20, and then 22 games next three years. You're going to rack up the first of many Cy Youngs, and this team's going to go on what we found out to be that run. How quickly would you have laughed it off or said, okay, maybe like something like that's realistic? Um, I, I probably would have laughed it off pretty quickly and, and said maybe in a couple years like everybody else. I mean, look, from an individual standpoint, I, you know, there was – I don't want to say there was nothing that indicated to me that I was going to go out and win 20 games that year, but there were things that were indicating to me that I was going to start getting better and I was going to be a much more competitive pitcher, namely because of my changeup. My changeup really started to come, come to fruition that year in spring training, and I learned how to throw it as often as I could and as often as I wanted to. Uh, but still, there's, there's some self-doubt in, in – you have to not only do you have to prove things to other people, you have to prove things to yourself. And, you know, I think really for me, the, the, the defining moment in that season for me was early on, I pitched a game in Philadelphia where that, that I was not very good. I probably had maybe my uh, B minus to probably see stuff in that game, and I won. And it was a game that I would have never had a chance to win the previous three years that I was in a big leagues. And to me, Having won that game, I, I came to the realization that, oh, my God, I can win up here when I don't have my best stuff. And it was all because of my changeup. Because I had that changeup. I had a pitch that I could stay in a game and I could stay competitive if one of my other pitches wasn't quite what I wanted them to be. Whereas before, I was a fastball, curveball guy, and if I didn't have good command on a given night or I didn't have a good curveball on a given night, I was done. Um, so that was the breakthrough for me. And I think for us as a team – same thing. We went into that 91 season thinking, okay, realistically, we can be an over 500 team, finish somewhere in the middle of the pack in our division, because even that, as, as minimal maybe as that sounds, that was a huge jump for us at that team to go from last place and losing 100 games to being a team that was over 500 in the middle of the pack. That was a really big jump for us. So that was our goal. But, you know, I think somewhere around the end of May, um, we found ourselves in first place at that point in time, and it was like, okay, this can happen. Now, again, <laughs> maybe you say to yourself, yeah, we can do it this year. Nobody in their right mind would have said we were going to do it 14 in a row, but, you know, that's that's the beauty of everything that just kind of took place and what makes it so special. So for you individually, and, and one of the great things about Tom Glavin was, and it's cliched, but it's so true, we could never tell if you were winning 6 nothing or <laughs> losing 6 nothing yep. on the mound. But what was it like pitching in September games that mattered and then ultimately October? What was going going on inside that we couldn't see when we were watching you on the outside? Look, I, I was pretty good at hiding my emotions on the mound, and that came from – it's funny. You know, I remember when I left to go play pro ball, I remember my dad saying to me, listen, and, and I said that for a reason. He said, listen, there's going to be a lot of people who are telling you what to do and how to do it and giving you advice. He said it doesn't cost you anything to listen to people. you got to figure out what works for you and I thought oh okay and and boy what great advice that was because it was so true there's you know whether it's coaches or fans or friends or whatever you know there's always people that that feel like they have a nugget of information that can help you but anyway the reason I say that I remember Mudcat Grant was one of our minor league pitching coaches and I remember for some reason it stuck with me it hit me I don't know why but it did I remember him one day when we were talking, talking exactly about that. He said, listen, when you go out on that mound, 
those 25 guys in that other dugout have every reason in the world to want to kick your ass. So don't go out there and let them think for a second that they got you on the ropes because you're only going to give them more reason to feel that way. So when you go out there and you pitch, you make a bad pitch, you act like you meant to do that. You give up a home run, so what? Get the ball back and go out there and make your next pitch. And I don't know why that resonated with me, but it did. And I think it was the part of not wanting those guys in that other dugout to think they had you on a given night that you weren't on your game. Because we see it from guys on the other teams that are on the mound. You can tell by their body language, like, all right, boys, we got this guy tonight. He's not, not on his game. And I, I just never wanted to – I just never wanted to uh, to portray that when I was on the mound. So, like I said, it stuck with me. Um, but it served me well. I mean, and I, I think it, it was – it was the best way for me to keep my emotions in check. And trust me, there wasn't a game that I ever took the mound in the big leagues where I wasn't nervous. I was always nervous the day that I pitched and the day leading up to it until I got out on that mound and the game started. There's always that fear, and I say that casually, not that I was afraid, but there's always that fear of going out and embarrassing yourself. You're the, you're the one position on the mound or on the field that gets way too much credit for wins and way too much blame for losses. So you never want to go out there and, and, and have a game where you embarrass yourself. So that fear was a driving fear for me. But once I got on the mound, my mindset was, okay, I've done all my preparation. I've done everything I need to do to have prepared for this moment. Now it's time to trust your preparation. So once I got out there, my emotions went away, my nervousness and, and emotional part of it went away. But trust me, on the inside, I was churning. Um, but once that game started, thank God, I always had the ability to, and you, and you hear, I talk about it a lot with young pitchers, and you hear a lot of other guys talk about it. I had the ability, for whatever reason, to control my emotions and slow the game down in my mind. And that was really key for me uh, in terms of going out there and, and pitching good ball games. Tom, that next five years from 91 to 95, I mean, a ton of highs, individually and as a team, and then unfortunately the lows of getting so close and not getting there. Before I talk to you about 95, 1994, you became the voice of, of the player, which you were doing your job. And at that time, it became, I mean, whoever was going to do it was going to be the one who took all the negative uh, flack. Looking back on it, do you think you handled it as well as you could have? I mean, you were still a young guy. Would it have been different had you been another five or ten years older? Um, I think I handled it really well with the exception of I probably, in hindsight, made myself too available. Um, I think the 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 naive side of me thought if I did an interview, I was going to change somebody's mind. And that couldn't have been further from the truth because I, it, the one thing I learned in that process was there were people that were 100% against the players and there were people that were 100% on our, on our side. You weren't changing a lot of minds. I didn't know that. I just thought, hey, if I get the opportunity to do this radio interview or do this newspaper interview or whatever the case may be, that somebody listening, I'm going to really be able to make them understand what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it, and, and I'm going to change their mind. That wasn't going to happen. And I think in the end, because I was so accessible, that, yeah, I became, I became the reason the players were on strike. And, you know, I've heard people tell me that. I've had people come up to me and tell me after that that, you know, they, they could be in a bar somewhere and not hear the TV, but saw my face on TV and they hated me. Uh, so I understand that. I will say this. I mean, I think anybody who knows me knows that, you know, whether it was being a pitcher for the Braves or a player rep for the National League, 
if I was going to do it, I was going to do it. I was going to do it to the best of my ability, and that's just the way I went about it. It was it was a tremendous learning experience. Um, you know, you you can't get that kind of a of an education in business, so to speak, in college. I mean, I was living it firsthand. Like I said, I probably made myself too available uh, a lot of times, but I'll say this about that: it, it's it that that strike, as painful as it was uh, at that time, is the main reason why baseball's had the longest running labor piece of any sport. Who would have thought that after 1994? No, you're not kidding. Um, and then you guys get back on the field late in 95, but your team was still, I mean, built and ready to go win a title. But you had all the pressure of, of not closing the deal in the early 90s. Everybody knows that. So take me to the night. You're on the mound. You guys are up 3-2. Like, does that day, could you, could you go back if you wanted to? And I think you've written about this and just chronicle that day from the moment you woke up to the moment you celebrated on the middle of the field. Well, I can chronicle a lot of it. Um, you know, I remember when we lost that game, that game in Cleveland, I was pissed. And I didn't, you know, because it's, you want to win. You want to win. When you get a chance to win, you want to win. You want to be done. You don't want that other team to think they have a chance of coming back. So when we didn't win that game, to me, it was, all right, now these guys have life, you know, rather than put them to bed and be done with this, now they have life and we got to play another game. And, and it's, it's an odd dynamic when you're in the postseason to where when you're the guy who's pitching the next game, if your team has a chance to clinch, you don't want to pitch that next game. So when you have to, it's a readjustment in your brain. When you're the team that's trailing and you have to win to move on, yeah, I want the ball. I want that next game. I want to go out there. So it's an odd dynamic in that sense. So for me being the next guy, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to have to pitch that game because I wanted us to, to be done. I wanted us to be champions. And, then, and it really wasn't until we landed in Atlanta that night that I, that I really started to embrace the fact that you know what, this is a huge opportunity. This is an opportunity to go out and pitch and pitch your team to a World Series title. Uh, and that's when I really started to embrace it. And, and I remember, you know, the other big thing I remember was, you know, uh, Doggy Maddox pitched that game. And, you know, Cleveland hit him a little bit better than they did in, in earlier in the series. And I remember talking to Doggy and saying, hey, did you not pitch well or did they make adjustments to you? And he just, without skipping a beat, he said, dude, I didn't pitch good. Go out there and do your thing, and you're going to be just fine. And, I was, you know, for me, that was like, okay, great. Because you always, when you play in a series like those, um, or even in a regular season where you have back-to-back starts against a team, you always feel like you've got to make adjustments the next time you face them. Um, and that was something that I always fought. I always tried to feel like, hey, if I pitched a good ball game, then why can't I go out there and pitch the same way and have just as much success. If they didn't show me that they were going to make adjustments on me, then why do I have to make adjustments on them? Now, if I had a bad game, then, yeah, you better do something different. You better figure something out. Um, so that was really important to me to hear him say that because it, it eased my mind of feeling like or fighting the feeling like, okay, i got to make some adjustments, do something a little bit different here because they're seeing me again. So it just enabled me to stick to my game plan. And, and you know, it was no different than any other day in terms of, you know, I got up, I was nervous, I was anxious all day long. You get to the ball you know, you get to the ballpark as early as you can because somehow you feel like getting to the ballpark, now the game is closer, um and, and it's gonna get here sooner. But you still go through all that stuff and you know, I remember at one point in time going in the training room and putting a heat pack on my shoulder and my elbow like I always did before every game and fell asleep for a little while and you know, then it now it's time to go. And you know, I do remember 
when I warmed up for that game, there was as good a bullpen warm-up as I've had at any point in my career. I mean, I just remember like, oh, man, I was on. But as so many everybody knows, yourself included, I had two problems that from time to time in the first inning. So <laughs> I never I never paid too much attention to how I warmed up for that reason because there were plenty of times where I warmed up really good and then went out in the first inning and laid an egg. And there were plenty of times where I warmed up and I'm walking from the bullpen to the dugout going, oh, my God, how am I going to get an out in this game? And I'll throw a shutout. So, you know, you just don't ever know. And my biggest thing was when I walked into that dugout, and ultimately started coming out of the dugout, I just remember thinking, okay, I hope that what I had in the bullpen is with me when I go out there on the mound. And sure enough, I went out and had a a good first inning. It was like, okay, here we go, game on. I mean, I knew I had great stuff, and the fact that I had that good first inning was just evidence of it, and from there I, I I just rode with it. Yeah. Tom, your uh, Braves career speaks for itself, right? I don't know if the people remember this. At 36 years old, you went 18-11 and 11 with a 2-9 ERA in what was your free agent year. Let me ask you two parts of this. When did you see 300 in sight, and did you think there was even a possibility you wouldn't do it in Atlanta? No, I did not. Um, you know, I got to 200 and then, um, you know, get a little bit past 200, and then I'm in that free agent year, and, and really – at that point in time, I thought 300 was was realistic, and the whole the whole premise for me that free agent year was to get a contract that was going to be you know at least three and hopefully a four year deal because that's what I figured I was going to need to win 300 games. I didn't want to sign a two year deal or even a three year deal and then be searching for a team to pitch that last year trying to get my 300 win. So that was really the the the, the whole strategy behind what I was trying to find in terms of length of a deal. And, and that was really the first time I think that I allowed myself to think, okay, 300 is, is, is a possibility. It's kind of in the rear view mirror here a little bit. What do I, what do I need to do to give myself an opportunity to do that? So that was a, that, yeah, that was a big part of the negotiations for that contract was to try and make sure I was in the same place, having that opportunity to hopefully win my 300 game. Was was it even close when it came down to it? Was the Mets deal just too good to pass up? No, I mean, it was, look, it was there was there was um, a lot of back and forth, obviously, and, and it, you know, at the end of the day, I and mean, I know I get crucified a little bit for it. And look, I, I'm I'm smart enough to know that every contract is about money, uh, but to some degree, this this con this contract was not about money in terms of the Braves. I told them early on what I wanted, um, and they didn't want to give me what I wanted, and. When the Mets offered me more and offered me more years and the Phillies offered me more and offered me more years, I went back to the Braves and I said, look, I'm not asking you to match what those teams are now offering me. I'm asking you to give me what I asked for from the, from the get-go. Uh, so it wasn't like a situation where I said, hey, I know I asked for X, but now these teams are offering me Y, so you're going to have to get to Y or beyond for me to stay here. That wasn't the case. Now the Braves, they just didn't want to give me uh, the three years and the money that I wanted, so... Um, you know, it ended up being an awfully difficult decision and one that, quite frankly, I almost changed my mind on. But um, in the end, I just, you know, I, I couldn't change my word to the Mets. And, you know, that that ended up where I was. And, you know, I had a good experience up there. It was hard. Um, you know, I was essentially in New York by myself. And, you know, my wife was here with our kids and they were in school. So they would come up on weekends or they'd come up during the summer. So, it was it was tough, but I definitely went through some buyer's remorse uh, for a, for a good five to seven days after after that whole thing went down. 
So, Tom, let's finish up with this then. What was more nerve-wracking, game six of the World Series in 95 that night, pitching for a 300th win that day in Chicago for the Mets, or giving that speech on the stage in Cooperstown at the Hall of Fame? Oh, man, they're all nerve-wracking for their own for their own reasons, right? I mean, you know, the, the 95 game, obviously, for what it what it represented for our team. Um, yeah, it was, it was very nerve-wracking. You know, I would say that 300th game uh, was probably a touch more nerve-wracking um, because of, obviously, what it meant for me. Uh, that 300 number is so huge. But at the same time, I honestly, I wanted to get it over with. Um, I didn't get it done in my first start. And I felt bad for my teammates because they had to answer questions all the time leading up to it. So I just wanted to be done with it as fast as I could so that they didn't they didn't have to deal with it anymore. So that was pretty nerve-wracking, obviously, for what that represented. But then, the, you know, the Hall of Fame speech, same thing. I mean, it's, it's the nerve-wracking thing about the Hall of Fame speech is – you're trying to encompass a 20-plus-year baseball career in 10 to 12 minutes, uh, and you want to thank everybody who helped you along the way because it truly, I mean, it truly is a village. There's so many people that help you along the way. Um, so that, that to me, was the, the big fear and the big nervousness about that speech was, you know, trying to encompass your baseball career um, the way that you want would want it to be encompassed and at the same time make sure – you thank the many, many people along the way that were so instrumental in you even getting to that point. Yeah. Tom, the career speaks for itself. I know uh, Atlanta fans, one of our favorite guys, both on and off the mound, and uh, like a true picture of Atlanta. Thanks for spending some time and telling us some of the tales. My pleasure, Matt. I appreciate it. Thanks right. for having me. Thanks, everybody, so much for taking the time to listen to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. Thanks to our producer, Matt Lear. For his assistance with the program, he's the glue that keeps the operation running. We'll talk to you next week on Welcome to Madlanta. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play and we ride on them things like every day. Big beats hit streets, see gangsters roaming and parties don't stop till 8 in the morning. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play and we ride on them things like every day. Big beats hit streets. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save, and save and win. A lifetime of hard work, children laughing in the kitchen, family photos on a restaurant wall, a legacy that lives on. It all comes from the power of a conversation, like the one Tommy Hall had with First Horizon Bank about taking over his father's Charleston-based restaurant business. Now the table is set for a whole new generation. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Tommy. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. The fan is ready for Brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. 
We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season.